Welcome back once again to the Tasty Morsels of Critical Care podcast, a meandering monologue through critical care, fellowship, exam, preparation, and my name is Andy Neal. We see C. diff or Clostridium difficile in the intensive care unit in a couple of contexts. Firstly, you've got the poor, unfortunate soul who starts with a benign illness and gets some antibiotics and then develops a fulminant colitis and shock, needing colectomy and an ICU admission. Secondly, we have the frequent dilemma of the prolonged ICU patient who's collecting complications like their merit badges. They've now developed new shock and there's some diarrhoea and you're worried about C. diff. So first off, some risk factors. So firstly, obviously, is antibiotic exposure and topping the list here would be beta-lactams and clindamycin, closely followed by quinolones, astrianum and lecarbapenems. A truncated list of patient-specific risk factors might go as follows. So age greater than 65, previous GI surgery or inflammatory bowel disease, renal impairment, prolonged hospitalisation, certainly especially if there's been a CDF contact. Gastric acid suppression is on the list, though the peptic trial would suggest against this, uh, would suggest it's unlikely, or at the very least not any more likely than an H2 receptor antagonist. However, I still think this is a totally fair answer to give in an exam situation. Um, obviously, other patients at risk would be immunocompromised and chemotherapy patients. And there are a few useful principles of prevention if you had to make a list. Think about hand washing, and remember that spores survive alcohol and on surfaces, so you actually need soap and water. Um, isolation of patients, you need testing of symptomatic individuals and you want to avoid and minimise antimicrobials and also limit PPI use and get the NG tubes out as soon as possible seems to be helpful. In terms of diagnosis, we're typically thinking of this in patients with diarrhoea. So we send a stool sample and then we wait patiently by the computer for a result. But what are we actually testing here? This will of course depend somewhat um, on your local lab, but there are a few important principles. So most of the time we're testing for a toxin produced by the bacterium itself. This could be toxin A or B or both. And if both are positive, then cool, 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 you, you've probably got your diagnosis. If you've got one positive and one negative, then IDSA recommends using nucleic acid amplification or PCR as a tiebreaker. The PCR here is very, very sensitive. And the issue is that the presence of C. diff DNA identified by PCR in your poo doesn't necessarily imply disease. Whereas the combination of symptoms, a positive toxin immunoassay and a PCR is a much more compelling narrative for diagnosis. An important component of the diagnosis involves some form of mucosal assessment, particularly in the severe cases. This can be some form of flexible baroloscopy or perhaps a CT scan looking for colitis or megacolon. And once you've made your diagnosis, you're ready to start some treatment. And this can be very confusing as treatment is not only determined by severity grade, but the recommendations have changed relatively recently in 2018. So the stuff that you learned for your membership examinations may no longer be relevant at this stage in 2021. The split here is into non-severe, severe and fulminant disease. So keep that in mind. So the split between non-severe and severe is defined by a white cell count less than 15 and a normalish creatinine. That'll keep you into the non-severe group. This distinction would seem an important thing to memorise. However, as far as I can work out reading the guidelines, IDSA suggests identical treatment for both non-severe and severe. And that treatment namely is vancomycin, 125 milligrams POQDS, or fidoxamycin. The important note here is that metronidazole PO is no longer recommended the way it was in the mid-noughties when I started out in medical school, uh, not medical school, practising. Fulminant disease is primarily determined by shock and the presence of megacolon. So th this probably is something worth remembering as treatment here is significantly different. Here you're going to give VANC 500mg POQDS plus metronidazole IV, which after being given IV is secreted unchanged into the GI tract via the biliary tree. 
For those with nasty distal disease, so say in the sigmoidal rectum, then vancomycin enemas can also be used, which will certainly make you super popular amongst the nursing staff. While rarely done, it's really important in both clinical practice and certainly in an exam to consider taking out the whole colon. The surgeons will of course make the final decision on this, but some may need a little nudge in the right direction. And potential nudges here might include hypotension requiring vasopressor therapy, clinical signs of sepsis and organ dysfunction, maybe a white cell count in excess of 50, a lactate in excess of 5, and a failure to improve a medical therapy after 5 days. So, if at this point you've managed to get all this across in your SAQ, then you're absolutely flying. But if you want to go for gold, then there are a few other niche things that you can throw in, like, how about a fecal transplant? This is niche and not really considered until after the third recurrence. Um, another one that's sometimes mentioned is IVIG, because it's used for everything in these types of situations, and you could use that as a toxin-binding agent in fulminant disease, though there is no substantial support for this move. Um, finally, there is a monoclonal antibody to bind toxin, but again, data is really sketchy at this point. For references and rationalizations here, the Deranged Village Physiology post is excellent on this, along with the, as always, excellent Life in the Fastlane, and the IDSA 2018 guidelines are really the core text for the recommendations here. Thanks again for listening, and until next time. <laughs>